Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us. Last week, uh, I referenced an article by Sebastian Morello on the European Conservative blog, uh, actually a rather lengthy three-part essay that was called by the rather provocative title, Can Hermetic Magic Rescue the Church? Uh, spoiler alert, his answer is no. <laughs> but what he is proposing was interesting to me. And, and first, I'll, I'll let him make the case in his own words. He says that the, the West is... The West is entrenched in a crisis of meaning. And while uh, the institutional church is experiencing a crisis of authority, which, he says, has altogether moved it into its post-authority epoch. Consequently, he says, the only institution that can adequately respond to the current meaning crisis is in no condition to do so. He also suggests that this double crisis represents two sides of the same problem— the bewitchment of the Western mind by the spell of the Enlightenment. So, he says, uh, quote, The church has lost a sense of its very purpose. What is now left is power and a craving for power within a petty and dying bureaucracy. The church's government has long run on the fumes of its previously held authority, but the engine is now choking and the whole institution is rapidly grinding to a halt. In a feeble attempt to hold on to the last vestiges of authority, the Church's government has resorted to the habitual exercise of arbitrary power, which, ironically, is further accelerating the erosion of clerical authority, unquote. Uh, case in point would be Pope Francis's arbitrary attack on the traditional Latin Mass and uh, Catholics attached to it, most uh, particularly in the document Traditionis Custodes. That's clearly an arbitrary exercise of power. does nothing to abate the Christ in the church and, in fact, persecutes the one segment of the church that is both faithful and growing. Uh, truly an arbitrary exercise of power. Um, <clears throat> so Mr. Morello says that the precondition for the church's recovery is, quote, breaking the spell of modernity, that the scales may fall from our eyes and we may again behold the participatory vertical version of creation, or rather vertical vision of creation. What he is proposing, again in his words, is that the paradigm of rationalism, with all its chaotic relationships, ugly architecture, shallow sentimentalism, fetishization of abstractions, I, I like that, legal positivism and blindness to persons, to which the institutional church has conceded so much moral territory, must be overcome if we are to recover the primacy of the mystical in the life of the church. Now, and this is very much akin to what I've been saying now for 20 years, that the church needs to recover that the, the primacy of the mystical, what I call the medieval mentality. And that's why I believe the uh, patron saint for the persecuted church of the 21st century is the great medieval mystic known as the mellifluous doctor for his eloquence and the last of the fathers for his, you know, the, the depth of his biblical theology. That is, of course, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, whose feast day, by the way, is the 20th of this month. So get ready to party like it's 1199. Uh, anyway, why bring all this up? Well, I've been talking a lot on the program lately about the two 
dominant theological currents at Vatican II, Resourcement, or a return to the sources, and aggiornamento, or updating. Uh, it, in my opinion, it is the tension between these two currents that is responsible for the ambiguity that is present in the documents of Vatican II, and also for the conflicting interpretation of those documents. The resourcement interpretation being the quote-unquote hermeneutic of renewal and continuity that was favored by John Paul II and Benedict XVI, over and against the uh, hermeneutic of rupture, which is the, you know, Vatican II is a new start from zero approach of Paul VI and now Pope Francis. It is only the conflicting nature of these two currents that can explain the obvious contradiction between Benedict XVI's traditional teaching that what was always sacred remains sacred, and, and Pope Francis's really radical and novel idea that, that restoration is going to kill us all. Now, these represent two diametrically opposed visions of the church, this, this conservative uh, continuity versus a radical rupture. And taken to the extreme, uh, resourcement can uh, devolve into antiquarianism on the one hand, and a giornamento can devolve into uh, just can just morph right into modernism on the other, uh, simply two sides of the same heretical coin. But even when legitimate, both approaches necessarily minimize the the contribution, the great contribution of the Middle Ages, which is the foundation of modern Western civilization, namely Christendom. Unique in human history, Christendom was the product of believers inspired by the gospel to build up the kingdom of God on earth. But that very medieval Catholicism with its, its beautiful Latin liturgy, its elegant and sophisticated Thomistic theology, its uh, magnificent Gothic cathedrals and so on, this is uh, perceived as an existential threat. You know, obviously, one cannot insist on the revival of ancient practices long abandoned or propose new, a, a new and improved way of being church on the other, uh, without devaluing the genuine progress made in the Middle Ages. Ironically, I think it's Pope Francis' stated opinion that the rigidity, uh, I would say the orthodoxy of young clergy, uh, threatens to destroy the quote-unquote progress made since uh, the Vatican Council. But, you know, to what progress could he possibly be referring? When by every measurable standard... The church is in a devastating state of decline, which shows no signs of, of slowing down. However, you know, for the rest of us, that is to say, for faithful Catholics who are not hopelessly bound to the moribund theology, theological novelties of the 20th century, there are important lessons to be learned from the Middle Ages. The other day I was written, uh, reading a book that was written by uh, Father Sabine Baring Gould, who was a 19th century Catholic priest, it was called Curious Myths of the Middle Ages. And one chapter was devoted to uh, the medieval conception of the Antichrist. Now, it's understandable that this was a topic of, of very much on the medieval mind. You know, consider the Great Western Schism, for example, of 1378 through 1417, when there were first two and then three different uh, claimants of the papal throne, right? Also known as the Papal Schism, uh, this found the clergy and the faithful lining up behind popes or anti-popes alike. And I believe that the common people can be forgiven if they saw uh, in, in such events 
the fulfillment of our Lord's prophecy of Matthew 24, that the time would come when false prophets would deceive, if possible, even the elect. And in an allusion to 2 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, the medievals believed, I'm quoting now, Antichrist's doctrine will not be downright infidelity, but a, quote, show of godliness, unquote, whilst denying the power thereof. That is, the miraculous origin and divine authority of the faith. He will sow doubts of our Lord's manifestation in the flesh. He will allow Christ to be an excellent man, capable of teaching the most exalted truths and inculcating the purest morality, yet himself fallible and carried away by fanaticism. And this, by the way, is a common, if not prevailing, opinion amongst modern biblical scholars today. Now, at the same time, it says there is to be an awful alliance struck between the Antichrist, the impersonification of worldly power, or world power, and the Church of God, some high pontiff of which, or the episcopacy in general, will enter into league with the unbelieving state to oppress the very elect. Remember, this, we're talking about the, the medieval conception of, of the Antichrist. You know, and somebody might uh, consider the, the COVID lockdowns a timely example, or, or perhaps the, the Vatican's current policy of recognizing the legitimacy of bishops chosen by the, the Chinese communist government, or, uh, as already mentioned, Pope Francis's inexplicable, inexplicable campaign to annihilate the traditional mass. And the book offers an apologetic, uh, father in the book, I should say, offers an apologetic against the Protestants who impiously claim that the Pope of Rome is the man of sin as well as the, the harlot, the whore of Babylon, the, and, and, as well as the beast and the priest going before it, all rolled into one. Uh, the man of sin, it says, and the beast are unmistakably identical and refer to an anti-Christian world power, whilst the harlot and the priest are symbols of an apostasy in the church. There's nothing Roman in this, but something very much the opposite, Father Baring Gould says. How the abomination of desolation can be considered as set up in a church where every sanctuary is adorned with all that can draw the heart to the crucified and raise the thoughts to the imposing ritual of heaven is a puzzle to me. Of course, <clears throat> when those words were written, every Mass was a traditional Latin Mass, and every Catholic church uh, had a beautiful high altar with a tabernacle front and center. It's interesting to note that he considers the abomination of desolation to be fulfilled by a barren sanctuary. In the time of Antichrist, he says, the church will be divided. One portion will hold to the world power, and the other will seek out the old paths and cling to the only true guide. The high places will be filled with unbelievers in the incarnation, and the church will be in a condition of the utmost spiritual degradation, but enjoying the highest state patronage. This religion will be one of morality, but not of dogma. And in that terrible season of confusion, faith will be all but extinguished. That's a bleak picture. And I do not imply that uh, it, it, it uh, speaks exclusively of our times, but it certainly speaks to times like ours. More on this uh, when we come back. Also, I'm going to be talking about uh, World Youth Day a little later on and uh, some other things as well. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this.
Okay, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Before the break, we were talking about the Antichrist, the medieval concept of the Antichrist, from a book written in 1867 by one father, Sabine Baring Gould. And I was pointing out that he could not possibly, in 1867, been able to imagine a church where confusion is the hallmark of the papal magisterium or where the Pope and, and, and some bishops speak repeatedly in, in support of the United Nations while actively persecuting Catholics who hold fast to the traditions and worship as Catholics have always worshipped. I said uh, before the break, I don't believe that we're necessarily in the end times, but I do believe that, that what St. Uh, John said in the first century is still true in the 21st, that the spirit of Antichrist is already abroad in the world. And as he wrote in the Apocalypse, the sun, that is the faith, may go out. The moon, uh, representing the church, may be turned to blood by persecution and, and no longer give forth her light. And the stars may fall, that is the, the stars meaning the, the hierarchy of the church, uh, falling into apostasy. But only for a time. And then the, the, the church will weather the storm, and then she will come forth, Beautiful as the moon, terrible as an army with banners, as it says in, in the scriptures. It's happened before, and I believe it is, will happen again. And that is the medieval mentality in a nutshell, and that's no nonsense. Okay, last Saturday, <clears throat> my wife Betty and I attended the final religious profession of a friend of ours. The, uh, the Mass was Novus Ordo, but it was um, well celebrated, and uh, by a bishop, no less, the superior of his order flew in from out of the country to accept our friend's vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And the superior made the remark that, uh, in keeping with their charism, the ceremony was simple, but it was not to be taken lightly. Uh, and the presence of the bishop, I think, lent further gravity to the proceedings. And in his homily, the bishop mentioned that he had flown in from Lisbon, where he was attending World Youth Day, in order to uh, celebrate the Holy Mass for my friend's final profession. And coming from a religious order himself, he mentioned uh, that 38% of recent vocations to the priesthood and religious life had come from World Youth Day. Now, technically, the uh, statistic His Excellency was referring to only concerns newly ordained priests and uh, religious, uh, newly professed religious, 38% of whom had attended a World Youth Day, you know, which I think says more about the type of young people that attend uh, World Youth Day than it says about the event itself. Of course, uh, you've no doubt been hearing a lot about um, the most recent World Youth Day, which was held just this last weekend in Lisbon, and uh, a lot of the coverage has been rather negative, I'm sorry to say, beginning with the shocking remark of Americo Aguiar, Auxiliary Bishop of Lisbon, back on July the 6th, who said, and I quote, we don't want to convert the young people to Christ or to the Catholic Church or anything like that at all, unquote. Now, his remark sent shockwaves through the Catholic commentariat, as you would imagine, especially given that World Youth Day was founded by uh, Pope St. John Paul II expressly to deepen the faith of young Catholics and to invite others to embrace that faith. And it was made the more scandalous by the fact that uh, Bishop Aguilar is, in fact, Cardinal-elect Aguilar, and he will be uh, made a cardinal by Pope Francis in September. <clears throat> and of course, the, the bigger news that I'm sure you've heard by now is the miraculous cure of a 16-year-old girl from Spain. The young pilgrim, known only as Jimena, 
traveled to Lisbon from Madrid, this is all according to Catholic News Agency, uh, with a group from Opus Dei, and during the days prior, her friends and relatives organized a novena to pray to Our Lady of the Snows, whose feast day is August 5th, um, which is the same day that she, she says she received, recovered her sight. For two and a half years, uh, it says, Jimena had suffered from progressive myopia that left her with a 95% loss of vision. But on the morning of August 5, at the time when the Holy Father was in Fatima, praying the rosary at the Fatima Shrine, Jimena received what she herself describes as a great gift from the Virgin Mary. She said she woke up that morning, quote, as I have been getting up for two and a half years, seeing super blurry, very badly. She explained that she went to Mass with her friends because we are at World Youth Day. And after receiving communion, she says, I began to cry a lot because it was the last day of the novena and I wanted to be cured and I had very much asked God, please. When I opened my eyes, I could see perfectly, she said. It was overwhelming. Very many thanks must be given for the miracle because I saw the altar, the tabernacle. My girlfriends were there and I could see them perfectly. Now, Cardinal Juan Jose Omeya, president of the Spanish Bishops' Conference, um, spoke with Jimena on a video call, and at a press conference, he called the possible miracle, quote, a grace from God. He pointed out that doctors will have to assess it, but for now, for the girl, he says, that has been a major event. Let's say a miracle. She didn't see, and now she sees. Blessed be God. Now, Cardinal Omeya further said that he was really struck by the testimonies of, uh, that took place during World Youth Day from young people who had, quote, recovered their interior vision, which, of course, was the purpose of World Youth Day in the first place. So, is this a, uh, an authentic, modern-day Eucharistic miracle? It may well be. And that brings me, uh, unfortunately, to a less edifying story. And you may have seen the photo that went viral over the weekend uh, on social media, which shows three young people in a pop-up tent kneeling before a folding table being used as an impromptu altar of repose. And there's a couple other people sitting or standing nearby. On a a tablecloth flanked by two candles were three large stackable bins, or those plastic containers like you see at the hardware store. They were stacked one on top of the other and topped with a small vase of flowers. These containers were packed with consecrated hosts. I saw a post on Facebook yesterday from one of the girls who was kneeling in the photo. She said since there were so many opinions and theories and accusations going around that she wanted to put in her two cents because, you know, she experienced the circumstances captured in that photo firsthand. She says that she and her friends were walking back from, quote, a praise and adoration ceremony when they spotted these large gray boxes sitting on the table. And he said there were, many, there were maybe two or three people praying around them. Well, I went up to one of the ladies and she said, Jesus is in there, referring to the gray boxes. Now, this young lady's reaction was to be infuriated, I mean, to the disrespect being shown to our Lord. She asked, you know, what do they think they're doing, putting him in a box and people just walking right past, not knowing that he's there at all. And so the young woman says she was fuming as she and her friends walked back to their campsite. But they decided that instead of being angry, they would do something about it. <clears throat> Pardon me. She said, we weren't going to protest or post on our social medias that it was an outrage, although I do believe there's a time and place for that, she said. 
We weren't going to gossip to others about it. We were going to take our rosaries, go back to Jesus, and say a rosary in reparation for sins against his sacred heart. So that's what we did. She went on to say that there was so much good that had come out of World Youth Day and that she'd been posting about it all weekend. She said, I think it's important to address this, but first to pray, and, and, and then, we can, then we can address the atrocity. It's a pretty wise attitude for a youngster. She said, in my humble opinion, it's an absolute disgrace to put the host in such an unworthy container to be worshipped. When adored, Jesus should always be kept in a tabernacle or exposed in a monstrance, which is, of course, correct. And she asked, how are we, the youth, supposed to believe that Jesus is truly here when this is how he's represented? Finally, she asked the bishops and priests responsible to make a statement. Tell us, she said, tell us, the youth from across the world, why was Jesus exposed in such a manner? And I, thus far, I, I don't believe she's received any kind of response, and I would uh, counsel her not to hold her breath. But what strikes me is the contrast between these two stories. The one, a miracle, and the other, a sacrilege. See, the thing is, with, with an event as large and as unwieldy as World Youth Day, offering a million people communion is a virtual guarantee of sacrilege. As in years past, there's been many articles and media posts uh, about the, the countless outrages committed against the Blessed Sacrament at the enormous outdoor masses at World Youth Day this year. Which brings to mind another comparison. You know, First off, there's nothing wrong with World Youth Day per se. I mean, the event was founded to inspire young Catholics and to take their Catholic faith more seriously and to unite with other like-minded young Catholics from around the world. That's a truly Catholic mentality. And, and such enormous events as, as the Rosary Crusades and, and Eucharistic Congresses of yesteryear, long before Vatican II, um, you know, had, had been held where millions of Catholics would gather for outdoor rosaries and, and open-air masses. And, and it is praiseworthy. And I've seen the, the photos of you know, millions of Catholics gathered for these events, and, and it's an edifying spectacle. You know, you've got this, this ocean of nuns in habits and, and, and lay people in their Sunday best. And there was an episode of Life is Worth Living from 1954 on, on Fatima, and you can look it up on YouTube. And Bishop Sheen speaks about uh, an event at Fatima, Portugal, where he said the traditional Mass for a million pilgrims. Hey, in the booth, <laughs> just uh, um, a quick poll. How many of you would like to have been there? Okay, so it's not just me. Good, I, I'm just checking. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, you know, my point in bringing up the difference uh, in these traditional gatherings versus World Youth Day or the, the big outdoor masses at St. Peter's for tens of thousands of people is that before Vatican II, it would have been unthinkable to try and offer communion to a crowd that size. Precisely because of the inevitable, the, the unavoidable sacrileges that would, that would take place. You know, uh, um, hang on. Anyway, even uh, today, if the uh, uh, often cited statistic is true that 70% of church-going Catholics in the Novus Ordo don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, then we have a situation where the majority of communions are already sacrilegious. You know, in, in the first segment, I mentioned uh, the church locking down during COVID. But even when the churches were closed, the holy sacrifice of the Mass was still being offered around the world. 
you know, Catholics believe that God can bring good out of every situation. And, and I, I mentioned that back at, at the time, what a shame it was for the churches to be closed precisely when they were needed so, so badly. But at least there were not millions of sacrilegious communions every Sunday. You know, and, and if it's true, the fact that young Humana was cured of her blindness after receiving Holy Communion at World Youth Day is a powerful testimony to the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And for a set of Acantist friends, for the validity of the Novus Ordo Missae. But it also makes the fact that the, the Blessed Sacrament was unceremoniously reserved in plastic bins, uh, which have been rather impiously labeled uh, tuppernacles. It makes that even more upsetting. But these two instances bring home two important points. First, the Holy Eucharist is, Christ is really present in the Holy Eucharist. And second, God can bring good out of every bad situation. His grace prompted those young people to adore him. And even uh, after being treated as mere bread, brought that miracle of healing to young men. And that's no nonsense. Okay, we'll be right back with more right after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And tomorrow on the traditional calendar is the Feast of St. Lawrence, making today the Vigil of St. Lawrence. So happy Feast of St. Lawrence to you. Uh, He's one of the great saints of August, along with St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and is actually connected to him uh, via uh, the Knights Templar and their special veneration of one of the great relics of Christendom, namely the Holy Grail. Now, St. Lawrence, though, is not a medieval saint. Uh, He rather lived in the 3rd century. He was a Spaniard by birth and one of the first of the seven deacons who uh, served the Church of Rome. His duty was to assist the Pope when celebrating Mass and distributing communion to the people. And he was also in charge of church property, distributing um, among the poor the, uh, the offerings given to the church. So what does all of that have to do with uh, the Holy Grail? Well, when St. Peter left Jerusalem for Antioch and then Rome, he took the cup of the Last Supper with him, the very cup mentioned in the institution narratives of the Synoptic Gospels and St. Paul in 1 Corinthians. And we have a clear indication that for more than two and a half centuries, St. Peter and his successors, the first popes, used the chalice of the Last Supper to celebrate Holy Mass in Rome. In fact, we have documentary evidence in the form of the ancient Roman canon. The, uh, the canon of the traditional Latin Mass is called Eucharistic Prayer Number 1 in the Novus Ordo, uh, but it was, in fact, the only <laughs> Eucharistic prayer uh, in the Latin Rite for more than a thousand years uh, until the imposition of the New Missal in 1969. But tradition tells us that the form of consecration in the Roman canon was fixed since apostolic times. According to Pope Innocent III, quote, In truth, the apostles received the form of the words from Christ himself, and the church received it from the apostles themselves, unquote. Council of Trent also affirms that the Roman canon is apostolic. For our purposes, it certainly goes back to the 3rd century. So why is this significant? Because the Roman canon was unique 
amongst the ancient liturgies, all the rest of which echo the words of Scripture, according to the institution narrative in Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and giving it to his disciples said, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood. Now, in the various uh, ancient Catholic liturgies follow the scriptures. Then he took the cup, or taking the chalice, he. But the Roman canon alone says, Echipians et hunc preclarum calicem. Then he took this precious chalice, or in my old missal says, this goodly chalice. You'll note this has been restored to the, uh, the, in the 2010 uh, revision of the English translation of the Novus Ordo Missal. Not the chalice, but this chalice. Now, why are these words found in the Roman canon alone? Because for the better part of the first three centuries of the Christian era, the popes in Rome celebrated the Holy Mass with the cup used by Christ at the Last Supper, the Holy Grail, literally this goodly chalice. And, and what we know, or what we know as the Holy Grail, or uh, the Santo Calice in Spanish, resides today in a chapel in the Cathedral of Valencia. So the question is, how did that cup get from Rome to Spain? And that's where St. Lawrence comes in. See, history records that Pope uh, St. Sixtus II was put to death at the hands of the Emperor Valerian. And when Sixtus was led out to die, St. Lawrence wept that he could not die with him. And the Holy Pope said, Do not weep, my son. In three days you will follow me. Hence, Sixtus, Sixtus had instructed Lawrence to preserve the holy relics and to distribute the, the church's monies among the needy rather than have them fall into the hands of the Romans. So when the Roman prefect ordered Lawrence to surrender the church's supposed wealth, St. Lawrence gathered the poor and the sick and showing them to the prefect said, Behold, the true treasures of the church. Well, the emperor Valerian was not amused and St. Lawrence was martyred but not before sending the Holy Chalice to his hometown of Huesca by the hands of a Roman soldier who was a Christian and a fellow Spaniard. The cup was accompanied by a letter asking his parents to keep it hidden, keep it safe. The original letter is no longer extant, but it is attested to in a 12th century document by the canon of Zaragoza and a 14th century letter of King Martin V of Aragon, and in the more recently, uh, just after the turn of the century, recent, uh, recently discovered 6th century letter of St. Donato. So the Grail went to Spain, where it remains to this day, and we have St. Lawrence to thank for it. Now, St. Lawrence was martyred in the year 258 by being placed on a gridiron to be roasted to death over a slow fire. He is the patron of seminarians. Uh, not that there's a connection between being in the seminary and being slowly roasted to death. <laughs> and he is also the unofficial uh, patron of comedians for famously telling his executors, you may turn me over now, I'm done on this side. Uh, so a happy feast of St. Lawrence tomorrow and a blessed vigil today. And let's say a quick prayer. O oh God, by his ardent love for you, St. Lawrence exhibited faithful service and attained a glorious martyrdom. Help us to love what he loved and practice what he taught, because what was once sacred 
remain sacred. Amen. Okay, I've been meaning to talk about uh, this for a while now, and I'm finally getting around to it. It's a couple of months ago, Monsignor Charles Pope uh, posted an article on the National Catholic Register website called Eight Modern Errors Every Catholic Should Know and Avoid. I don't really have time to get to a couple of them, but and I actually spoke about one of the main ones, which is the heresy of universalism uh, last week or the week before. But um, as the title implies, he's got an eight-point uh, list of modern era errors that are common even in the church. And he's careful to mention that he's using common language that speaks uh, less to philosophies and logical fallacies and more to the errors as they are experienced. Further, he says, though the errors are common in the world, I present them here as especially problematic because we all too often find them in the church as well. They are sadly and commonly expressed by Catholics and represent a kind of infection that has set in which reflects worldly and secular thinking, not godly and spiritual thinking. He, uh, he started with a list of eight, but he says he's only just begun, so there may be more to follow. Anyway, the first error is reference to uh, or, or mercy without reference to repentance. He says, for too many today, mercy has come to me, has come to mean God is fine with what I'm doing. But he says that, you know, true mercy presupposes sin, but doesn't overlook it. True mercy sees sins for the serious problems that they are and offers a way out. He says, God's mercy is his way of extending a hand to draw us out of the mire of sin. You know, the opening words of Jesus' earthly ministry were repent and believe in the gospel. And the order is important because repentance is the key that unlocks God's mercy. And Monsignor notes that it's far too common to hear sermons about mercy, but without reference to repentance. But that's not mercy. Admonishing the sinner, instructing the ignorant, those are spiritual works of mercy. Like Father Bill Casey said, to leave someone's in their sins is the most merciless thing you can do. And the next error, error is one he identifies as starophobia. Sounds like a dinosaur. Starophobia comes from the Greek meaning fear of the cross. And you know as well as I do that, that um, an authentic Christian life is one of self-denial. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. These are the demands of discipleship. But staurophobia, according to Monsignor Pope, is an error that proceeds from Catholics being reluctant to frankly discuss the demands of discipleship. It reveals a strong hesitation to insist that even hard things are often the best, the proper thing to do. And I suspect this proceeds from that oh-so-suburban virtue of being nice, which, of course, is not a virtue at all. You know, nowhere does the Bible say, thou shalt be nice, or uh, blessed are the nice. To be nice means to avoid conflict uh, and, and to not make others uncomfortable. The word itself comes from an old English word meaning simple, but, and not in a good way, but simple in the sense of stupid. Because being nice means avoiding conflicts at the expense of the truth. You know, the committee that put together the Novus Ordo stripped from the prayers and readings almost all references to things like God's wrath and eternal punishment and sin as the greatest evil because 
they said no one should be made to feel uncomfortable at Mass. So I guess they were trying to be nice. You know, and surely our Lord came to comfort the afflicted, but he also came to afflict the comfortable. He spoke of hell and eternal punishment because he is our Savior, and that is what he came to save us from. And that's why in January of 2022, I made my first ever New Year's resolution to stop being nice. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to be mean instead or, or, or uh, unnecessarily provocative, but I don't want to shy away from speaking the truth even if it makes you uncomfortable. See, Monsignor's point is that many Catholics, including priests and bishops, quote, he says, are downright fearful when pointing to the demands of the cross. When the world protests and says, are you saying that those with same-sex attraction cannot get married or be sexually intimate but must live a kind of celibacy? The honest answer is yes, that is what we're saying. But, he says, since that answer is hard, And rooted in the cross, many Catholics are dreadfully afraid of a straightforward, honest answer. And some are now unabashedly denying the plain teaching of the church. Father Martin, call your office. Monsignor says it's it's almost a, a cringing fear. But our good Lord said, you know, uh, in regard to embarrassment over the gospel, he said... That uh, that you uh, you know if you are ashamed of the Son of Man, He will be ashamed of you when He comes in the glory of God and His angels, and that's no nonsense. Okay, back with more right after this on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. This coming Sunday in the Extraordinary Forum is the 11th after Pentecost. And as usual, I want to take a look at the Gospel for the upcoming Sunday, which is taken this week from Mark 7, verses 31 through 37. At that time, Jesus, going out from the coasts of Tyre, came by Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, through the midst of the coasts of Decapolis. And they bring to him one deaf and dumb, And they besought him that he would lay his hand upon him. And taking him from the multitude apart, he put his fingers into his ears, and spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he groaned and said to him, Ephetha, which is, Be thou opened. And immediately his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke right. And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal did they publish it. And so much the more did they wonder, saying, He hath done all things well. He hath made both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. As far the words of the Holy Gospel. So the Gospel says of our Lord, He hath done all things well. And I would say that the secret of doing things well is having the right intention. Now there's an old story about a a medieval peasant who visited the town of Chartres when the great cathedral uh, there was being built. And he asked a workman, what are you doing? And he replied, I am cutting stone. Not satisfied with that answer, he went to another man and asked what he was doing. He replied, I'm earning my daily bread. And so he asked the third man, what are you doing? And he said, I am helping to build the house of God. 
See, the great medieval cathedrals took many years to build, and the various guilds of craftsmen took great pride in their work. You know, Gothic cathedrals are covered in, in statues and relief and other ornamentation. And even the roofs are adorned with statues that, that they, they knew no man would ever see. Right? This is long before we had skyscrapers or, or airplanes or drones, you know. Uh, they, they realized that, well, people are never going to see those statues. But God would see, and the saints and the angels would see. And because, uh, you know, they were building the house of God, they had to do all things well. And this is the point of the morning offering, right? To offer to God all of our prayers, works, joys, and sufferings to make intercession uh, and to make the intention, rather, to gain all the indulgences attached to the prayers that we'll say and the good works that you'll do. If we want to do all things well, start the day with the right intention. You know, I once saw in an old Catholic book uh, a picture of a boy and he's writing six zeros on a blackboard. And an angel is looking over his shoulder and writing the numeral one in front of the zeros. <clears throat> and making, you know, making it a million. And, and the point of the illustration was that it was, you know, it was nothing, but the angel made it a million. The angel represented what a good intention does for our actions. By themselves, they're just like a line of zeros. But with the good intention before them, they become very valuable. Uh, you know, a person who puts money in the poor box receives a reward, but a person who puts money in the poor box uh, in order to show off receives nothing. Uh, you think of the story of the Pharisee and the publican. They both did exactly the same thing. They each made a visit to the temple, but one did it from a good intention, you know, O Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and the other for the intention of exalting himself. And one went home justified and the other didn't. And it's because of the intention. Uh, uh, the craftsman building Chartres Cathedral had different intentions. One was, you know, just doing his work. One was earning his daily bread. <clears throat> you know, earning a living. And, and one of them had the intention of building the house of God. See, by making a good intention with our morning offering, we can offer our every action to God with the singular exception of sin. Can't offer sin to God. So making that morning offering helps us to avoid anything that we can't offer to him and sanctifies our every action. And because of that, we can hope, you know, when you stand in front of uh, the Lord in judgment that he will say of you, he hath done all things well. And that's no nonsense. Also, the, um, in the old uh, uh, Roman Catechism, the sermon program uh, gives as the dogmatic subject for the 11th Sunday after Pentecost the sacraments, because in the gospel, Jesus uses physical, ob uh, physical objects to communicate his healing grace, right? his saliva, his hands, and so on. And likewise, Jesus still uses physical elements, such as water, bread, wine, oil, human touch, to convey grace. These visible signs, when accompanied by the proper words and actions, become channels through which God's power is communicated to us, right? These are the seven sacraments, the visible signs instituted by Christ to confer the grace that they signify. Through the sacraments, Jesus makes his saving work present and effective in the lives of believers. Uh, so, uh, you know, for example, in the sacrament of baptism, 
water is used as a visible sign while the words of the baptismal formula are spoken. Or in the Eucharist, at the words of consecration, the bread and wine are transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Right? Just a couple of examples of how Jesus is still using physical objects in the sacraments to communicate his grace uh, very powerfully, uh, not just his spiritual grace, but even his healing grace, <clears throat> as we saw with uh, the miracle of World Youth Day. Uh, each segment has its own visible signs and words instituted by Christ to confer these specific graces and blessing. And a uh, final note, important to remember that the efficacy of the sacraments does not depend on the holiness of the minister or even the faith of the recipient. It is the power of Christ working through the sacraments, ex opere operato, that give grace, confers grace. Although the, the recipient of the, uh, of the faith, the disposition of the faith, I should say, of the recipient can affect um, how well he receives the, the sacraments and, and their effect on his life. Also, uh, again, according to the traditional sermon program from the Roman Catechism, the moral subject for the 11th Sunday after Pentecost is prayer. And uh, we're just talking about the morning offering as kind of the anchor point for a life of prayer. Maybe we should just take a step back and ask, what is prayer? According to the classic definition, which is repeated in the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2559, prayer is the raising of one's heart and mind to God or the requesting of good things from him. It is a vital and imminent communication with God, an expression of our relationship with him, and a means of growing in our spiritual life, growing in sanctity. Not just a recitation of words or a ritualistic practice, but a personal encounter with God. It is a conversation with the divine where we express our love, gratitude, adoration, contrition, our needs, all our intentions. It's through prayer that we enter into relationship with God, acknowledge his presence, seek his guidance, ask his pardon, and surrender ourselves to his holy will. Prayer takes various forms. Right? There's vocal prayer, uh, there's meditation, and there's contemplative prayer. Vocal prayer involves using words, you know, hence vocal. So uh, to, to speak or sing uh, in a way of expressing our thoughts, you know, uh, our thoughts and our emotions to God. It includes formal prayers like the Our Father or the Hail Mary, as well as the spontaneous prayers that come from the heart. Meditation is a form of prayer that involves uh, reflecting on the mysteries of faith or the scriptures or the life of Christ. Scripture says of Mary that she treasured all his words and pondered them in her heart. That's meditation. It's a way of deepening our understanding of God's word and allowing it to penetrate our hearts, which, of course, leads to closer union with him. And then we have contemplative prayer, which is a prayer of, of silence and stillness. Uh, it's been described as resting in the presence of God, allowing him to speak to us and transform us. It's a prayer uh, of simply being with God without the need for many words or even thoughts, just by surrendering yourself to his love and grace. So prayer is not just a one-way communication. Uh, Bishop Sheen was fond of saying, prayer is a dialogue with God. It involves listening intently to his voice, discerning his will, being open to his promptings and, and his inspirations. Uh, St. Augustine used to say that, that we speak to God in prayer, and he answers when we read the Holy Scriptures. And also, of course, through, through various people and events in our lives. Through prayer, 
both speaking to God and being attentive to his response, we grow in holiness. We grow in our relationship with God. We deepen our faith, and it helps us to align our desires to his holy will. So prayer is an essential part of the Christian life. It helps us to draw closer to God, to seek his guidance, to participate in his work of redemption. It's a means of receiving his grace and strength and consolation and of offering our praise, thanksgiving, and intercession for others. And that's no nonsense. All right, you know, there's some stuff that uh, I had to do uh, some heavy editing today. I I, uh, actually uh, prepared a lot more than I was able to communicate today, so I hope it wasn't too rough in the translation. And I do want to thank you for listening, for your continued patronage, and I want to thank you for for sharing it. I noticed uh, just in the last couple of weeks that the uh, the downloads and the, the listens and, you know, the, uh, uh, the traffic on, on our website and so forth has really uh, sharply increased for uh, this particular program. And so that means that people are, find, are finding it and that means that you're sharing it. So I want to say thank you uh, very much for that and encourage you to continue to do so, of course. Um, also want to thank you so much uh, for your prayers. People have communicated to me that they are praying for Virgin Most Powerful and for me and my family particularly, and, and I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I, I hope to uh, thank you personally uh, when we get to heaven, uh, if not sooner. And uh, also, I just want to mention, um, you know, to as Mother Angelica used to say, put us between the, the gas and the electric bill. If you can become a monthly donor... Uh, we, we really appreciate those donations. We count on, you know, those to be able to budget things. Uh, you know, we don't, we're not subsidized by any uh, large, you know, uh, contributors or by the church or any of that. It's just, it's just our sponsors are just the people that listen and, uh, and the, the few people that uh, buy commercial time uh, during the programs. So we want to say thank you so much uh, for your prayers and also for your your uh, financial contributions towards the upkeep of Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We really do appreciate it. And uh, until next time, uh, we're going to come back together, same time, same place, wherever it is and whenever it is that you listen to this program, and do it all again. And I invite you to join us when we do. And to say, again, thank you for listening. God bless you and your family. And do not forget this October... Go to the vmpr.org website and look at all the details for our upcoming conference, A Day with Bishop Sheen. I'm going to be there and Terry and and a a fellow that did his doctoral dissertation on Sheen's Mariology. A lot of great stuff happening. Check it out and we'll see you next time.